You may be seated. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Zechariah. And Merry Christmas. Christmas falling on a Saturday as it does this year is maybe not the worst time, but it is the weirdest time for the church calendar because we have to, we always celebrate Christmas and our main worship gathering for Advent the Sunday before Christmas, which puts it almost an entire week before Christmas. And I, of all people, shouldn't complain about that. I am well known in my family for being the guy who can't wait to open gifts or wait to give gifts. I just don't quite see the point of having something that I want or having something that that my family wants that I have already purchased for them, just waiting for them to open on that day. And so when we get gifts, I'm very prone to just say, hey, let's let's open them. Um, No one else in my family really wants that to happen, but uh, nevertheless, I'm dad, so it happens sometimes anyway. This is the final Sunday of Advent, the final Sunday where we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in his first Advent, as we will one day in eternity celebrate his coming in his second Advent. He has come as God himself, taking on flesh, coming near to us that he might carry our infirmities, he might carry our failures, our weaknesses, our poverty, even our sin and our death, and give us salvation from them all. So today, with great joy and peace, we come to one of the great Christmas passages of all time. Checks his notes. Zechariah, which is known far and wide as being the quintessential Christmas text. Um, Okay, so it's, it's probably not. You probably have never heard the book of Zechariah read as Jesus has come into the world. You've heard it read for a number of other things, and it's been referenced for a number of other things, but not Advent. But there is much in the way that Zechariah will be able to help us see in the work of Christ today. That as Christ comes, as he takes on flesh, the very nature of what he is doing there is patterned throughout the rest of his life. The book of Zechariah truly is a wonderful book. It is filled with rich pictures and important themes. And we'll do the best to take in as much as we can. The book of Zechariah, like the book of Hosea before him, is one of the longer minor prophets, being 14 chapters in total, which means that we will, by necessity, take a very lofty view. And I don't mean by holding up Scripture, as we hopefully will, but by looking down upon Scripture from a long ways away, 30,000 feet or so. My goal is simply to try and summarize what the book means and what Zechariah is trying to tell us. But as always, I would implore you then to take a deeper and more contemplative read through the book this week after we summarize it this morning. The book itself breaks up pretty easily into three basic parts, which will follow the very shape of the sermon this morning. Chapters 1 through 6 form visions. Chapters 7 through 8 form sort of a command from God to His people And chapters 9 through 14 wrap up the book. Six chapters in the beginning, two chapters in the middle, and six at the end. We'll save the middle of the book for last. So we will begin with these visions and the first six chapters and the message of God's grace. And the message of God's grace. We begin by reading from the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the eighth month, In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, 
and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not pay attention or hear me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. The visions that will make up these first six chapters will, frankly, on the first reading, on the second reading, on the third reading, seem very esoteric, extremely figurative, and filled with a meaning that we could only speculate on. For many of us, it's hard to find a rhyme or a reason for them. Zechariah sounds like he's had some sort of bad drug trip as he's gone through these visions. He's come up with horsemen and one vision. The second vision is just about horns and the craftsmen cutting off horns and scattering those who had the horns. The third is a dude with measuring tape. The fourth deals with Satan and the high priest. The fifth with a lampstand and a couple of olive trees. The sixth with an extremely large flying scroll. You can think of Aladdin's flying carpet, which ironically is not the last time I'm going to mention Aladdin today, which you probably weren't expecting. Um, You know, Weird visions, weird sermon. You can get what you want. So the seventh is just about a lady in a basket, and the eighth returns to horses. What do these particular visions have to do with one another? Do they have anything to do with one another? Before we get into that, though, we need to realize that those who had been returning to the land, this is post-exilic prophecy. And so the people had been moved out to Babylon, and by now they have returned to the promised land. This is clearly for those who are in the promised land even now. They have returned, and no doubt they would have many questions. The visions of Zechariah, while perhaps coming at different times, the first one especially has a very clear date. He says, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of the reign of Darius, that is, this occurs some, somewhere in October of the year 520. This is two short months after the preaching of Haggai, the same book that we heard last week, the same book in which Haggai took them to task for the fact that they were not actually worshiping the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, but rather they were concerned with their very practical needs and sometimes impractical needs that they might have had. They got lost watching the HGTV of their time and went overboard with the shiplap, no doubt knocking down walls and putting in quartz countertops at the same time, all the meanwhile leaving the house of God bereft of what it needed to be completed. Haggai reminded them of what was truly important. I think that Zechariah is at least partially proof that Haggai's preaching took hold, that people do indeed seem intent on fixing their mistakes. Gone are the prophets from before the exile who hammered on the sin of the people of God, who informed them of the wrath and the the exile that was to come. The book of Zechariah is incredibly positive almost all the way through. Yes, there are warnings. Yes, there are clear 
clear statements that if you continue in this way, there will be wrath coming for you, but the vast majority of it is incredibly uplifting and solid before the Lord and His people. This is why the opening of the book sounds the way it does. It looks back on the errors that their fathers made, implies that the same might be true of them, and implores them to act differently. Therefore, the questions that they would have asked reflected the reality that they were in. If they were disciplined so severely for their sin, why have the nations that are around them not disciplined for theirs? Can they truly be protected from those nations unless the Lord steps in and defeats them? Will there ever truly be peace for the people of Judah as small and as weak as they are, as long as those nations exist? And more than that, how can they, who are so tempted by the world, avoid the sins of their fathers, which repeatedly in this book come up, which they have already been tempted to do? No, they didn't engage in full-out idolatry, but they were clearly drawn away from the temple of the Lord and into their own temples. Self-idolatry was already starting to happen. What will God's solution to all of this be? I would think that the message of God's grace is found in the visions that he has for his people, and the message is found in those same visions. And there is a rhyme and a reason for the visions. We get a sense of this when we read from the first one of the horsemen, and we read of the last vision of the horsemen. There's eight total visions. And in both, the horsemen patrol on the earth in the first vision and in the last vision. In verse 11, we read this in the first chapter. They answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. In chapter 6 and verse 7, we read this. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those go, who go toward the north country have seen, have set my spirit at rest in the north country. <clears throat> there is a rhyme and a reason for this. The horses, the patrols like this were easy ways, probably the best way for countries, for nations at that time, to be able to see the actions of the other nations, what they were doing militarily, what they were doing politically. These would have been patrols to see the activities of the nations around. They are a picture of God's ability to understand and know what's going on in the whole world. He sees the rising and the falling. He sees the plotting and the scheming of all of the nations. We might think that this is kind of a slow way to accomplish this. Horses are not the quickest thing to us. They were the fastest thing to them. Unless somebody happened at some point in time to strap a saddle on a cheetah, this was the quickest way to get around. We might think that this is not the quickest way, but that's because of who we are, not because of who they are. The point of both the first vision and the last vision is this. God knows what is going on in the world. He sees the plotting and the scheming of all the nations around him. The next two visions, the second and then coming back from the last, the seventh, also have a lot in common. Both concern the removal, the destruction of things that threaten Judah, whether internally or externally. The second vision concerns horns and those who have these horns. And again, an odd picture for many of us who don't consider horns terribly frightening, but horns were a picture of power. Animals who had massive horns were massively powerful in the ancient world. They still are today. And so horns were seen as depictions of power. 
So what does God do? He sends craftsmen. It's an unlikely group to go in to get rid of these men with horns. He doesn't send warriors. He doesn't send hunters. He sends craftsmen. They remove the horns. They terrify these people with horns, cut them off, and presumably send them away. God is going to take away the power of the enemies of Judah, and they will not threaten them again. In the last vision, there is a woman. She is said to be nothing but wickedness. We read of this at the end of chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. The angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out, as though he was supposed to know what the basket was. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. Behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Again, this woman is said to be the very wickedness of the land. She's put back in the basket. A heavy leaden lid lands on top of it to allow her not to escape. And then women, an unlikely group, come to take her away to Shinar, to Babylon, where she will not bother the people of Israel again. Both of these depictions seem to say that the external enemies of God's people will not bother them anymore. And the internal problem of their wickedness, which sent them into exile, will not be present anymore. God will remove them both. The third and the sixth vision, again, have likenesses, this time focusing more on God and someone who uses measuring to measure things. And first, there is the measurement of the temple area, the measurement of Jerusalem itself. In the second, or in the sixth, that is, there is the measurement of this large scroll. The scroll is there because there are thieves in the land. There are liars who must be taken away. The measurement of Jerusalem is because God will indeed make his home with them. Indeed, he sounds like the God of Exodus surrounding them with a wall of himself to protect them from all others. The picture here is not so much of the problems that might be persistent in the people, but the fact that God will remove any obstacles from him being with them as well. That all those who stand opposed to him, liars and thieves, will be removed from their midst, and God himself will be with them in their city. second and the third, the sixth and the seventh, all have the same common theme. God will make all things well. There will be peace. There will be calm. The fourth and the fifth, the center, are the most important. The high priest is accused before God by Satan of being filthy and dirty. He is guilty and he is wicked. The Lord will hear none of it. Notice the Lord does not say that what Joshua the high priest is being accused of is wrong and factually incorrect. He doesn't say that. What he does say is that the accuser does not reflect the reality that God has made clear, that he is a burning branch taken from the fire. He is one who is pulled out of the judgment. 
And being pulled out of the judgment, his filthy robes were replaced by those who are clean. It is God's good favor upon him that means that no accusation can come against him anymore. The temple imagery is a little harder, but nevertheless, it is clear. The temple of God will be built. What Zerubbabel has put his hands to, he will accomplish. There is something of an oddity here. It is said that as Zerubbabel will build it, it will not be by his power. In verse 6, chapter 4, we read, The angel said to him, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That is how the temple will be built. No doubt, it is by the might of the people of Israel, the might of the people of Judah, that the temple is going to be built. The picture there is that that temple needs to be rebuilt physically because it is the symbol of what God is going to do symbolically amongst the people of God. Not by might, nor by power, but by the working of the Spirit. And we read in the New Testament church, building up as a temple for the Lord. In the end, the cleansing of the high priest, the building of the temple, is the surest sign and symbol that God will dwell with his people. That they will be clean and pure before him. That he will always be with them. They will be his people and he will be their God. God is going to remove all potential and real boundaries for him to be with his people. He is powerful enough to know what those issues are. He is kind enough to remove them. He is able to see all of the contingencies and to know how to handle all of the issues that will present themselves. There will never again be an exile. There is only now to return. And while the people are indeed in the promised land, an even better return is going to happen. Friends, God is, is not interested in exiling you. He's simply not interested in throwing you away or shuffling you off to the side. When you sin, He does not send you away from Himself. He doesn't give you a time out away from His presence. If you are away from the Lord, it is not because the Lord has sent you away. There is no exile for the people of God now. He has made a way to come clean, to come near to Him. And God saves sufficiently. It is all of His work, all of His doing. God will accomplish all of this. It is Him who removes all of the boundaries, Him who removes all of the contingencies, Him who removes all of the things that could possibly stand between you and your God. That is the message of God's grace. Let us turn then to the method of God's grace and think about the end of the book of Zechariah. We might question how these things are to come about. The portion from chapters 9 to the end of the book of Zechariah are truly amazing. There are a few Old Testament passages that speak so fluently of the nature of the work of Jesus Christ in these chapters. In these chapters, we get a picture of Jesus as a coming king in 9, 9, and 10. We get a picture of him as a deliverer in 9, 11 through 17. We get a picture of him as a general in 10, 4, and 5. We get a picture, replete pictures, of him as a shepherd throughout the 10th chapter and then even into the 11th. 
But we also have a picture of him as one who is despised in chapter 11, verses 7 through 14, and even as one who is butchered and pierced in chapter 12. When you read through Zechariah, you get the, the, the impression that there might be numerous people that God is going to call upon to do these things, as though he's sort of assembling a team of people together that will accomplish each of these individual tasks, a king to rule, a general to lead, a shepherd to, to guide and to correct and to comfort, someone to take the fall for his people. Yet when we read through these passages, we know full well they're meant to be pictures and point directly to Jesus and to Jesus alone. And while each of these are worth unpacking in detail, we simply can't do that, I would like to draw your, all, all of your attention to one basic point. The method of God's grace is almost always ironic. It's almost always against our expectation. It doesn't look like it ought to look. It doesn't sound like we think it ought to sound. It is always ironic. Take, for instance, this, this sort of famous call from Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is not how kings act, and certainly not how kings act who are coming in riding victoriously. The most anti-Christian way to look at this comes from the greatest animated Disney movie of all time, Aladdin, which I warned you about, so here it is. And that famous scene where the genie makes Aladdin into a prince, which always kind of befuddles me because he's a prince, but not really a prince, so I don't really get how he actually had his wish answered, but nevertheless. And they sing this great song, him coming into the city, and he's got all these elephants and monkeys, and he's got all this, this great train of things behind him, and the song is just parading how great he is. That is how the world parades into a city. That is how a world parades its princes and its kings. It still does. It is a very rare powerful person who does not speak of how powerful they are indeed. They act to glorify their name. They work hard to show how wonderful and how powerful and how stately they are. The incessant need to have people make much of them, to be fed in ever-increasing volumes, their own praises and honors. But this is not God's way, and it is certainly not the way of Jesus Christ. Instead of a grand Roman welcome, instead of coming in on a stallion, he rides the same beast of burden that his own people would have owned and used. He comes in lowly and humble. This is not just how he enters Jerusalem. This is how he enters the world. Not born to kings who are powerful, he is not presented as one of the great scribes of the book. His birth is not announced to any of them. King Herod has to search out for answers about when he was born because he just doesn't know. None of the Romans have a hint of it. His birth is announced to the lowest of the low, to shepherds out in the field, whom angels make a special point of coming to to announce. And a virgin, not a well-known one, just a random old virgin, 
There is fanfare, but it is directed at those not that we think it should come to, but to those we would think nothing of. This is the way of God. It is not the way of the world. God will accomplish his good plan, but he will do it in his way, in the way of irony against the way of the world. It's not just that he's a humble king who comes in riding on a donkey. It's that he is also a despised shepherd. In chapter 11, we read this, beginning in verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from his hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left to devour the flesh, and let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, Give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Flock doomed to slaughter. It's clear that this is not Zechariah who becomes this shepherd. After all, he has no right to annul the covenant that has been made between God and his people. It is clear that this is someone else entirely. This flock who is doomed to destruction has shepherds over it who care nothing for them. They are quick to sell off the sheep. They are quick to give them away so that they can profit off of them, those sheep. The shepherd chastised the other shepherds. He seemed to try to lead well, but they eventually rejected him for 30 pieces of silver. That is what they valued him as. It is not a small sum. It is not. But nevertheless, it is short of his value. Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. They indeed rejected the good shepherd. And therefore the Lord has given them over to nothing but false shepherds who led them astray and led them astray and led them astray. In chapter 13, we see the results of this action. And beginning in verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hands against the little ones in the whole land, declares the Lord's two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. 
And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refires silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. It says, I will send a sword against the very shepherd who was there to to shepherd my people well, the man who stands next to me, my man, I will send a sword against him and I will strike him and the sheep will be scattered. Indeed, he says, two-thirds will go into destruction, but God will save that third. He will save the remnant. He is a shepherd who is despised by his people. He is a shepherd who is neglected by his people. He is a shepherd who is struck down by his people, but this is the way that God will save his remnant. Indeed, even as Jesus is stricken, this comes to pass. Shepherd, here the good shepherd, is not the one who uses his sheep for his own good, but the one who lays down his life for their good. What's more, he's not just a humble king and a despised shepherd, but he is a defeated victor. Back in chapter 9, we have this wonderful depiction of the Lord fighting for his people. Read with me in 9, 13 through 16. I have bent Judah as my bow and made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour, and they shall tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bull, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women We get a wonderful depiction of how the Lord fights here for his people. And how he does so becomes clearly ironic. It seems as though he is going to have victory just in the exact same way that he has victory all the other times. Victory physically over the enemies of his people. That he will bring arrows upon them, that he will bring the sword upon them, that they will die, and that will be the end of it. But it is not through the power of the earth. It is not through the defeat of armies and principalities. It is not through victory as we see victory. I was reminded, as I always am this time of year, of the great Seinfeld Festivus episode. It's an alternative holiday that doesn't supposedly have the trappings of Christmas. Indeed, it is the most anti-Christmas holiday ever. Although the fact that there's simply an aluminum pole there is something I could possibly get on board with. I really don't like decorating anything, and so the thought of just bringing up something and slamming it down in the living room and saying, we're done, sounds really great to me. But the rest of the holiday is a pretty horrible thing, right? They gather together, they air their grievances, just a way to complain about one another to one another, and then they're supposed to have feats of strength. Now, it's funny because it's so ridiculous Until you find out that it actually wasn't ridiculous, this is something that happened to one of the writers of Seinfeld when he was a kid, and he is traumatized by it. As a matter of fact, he didn't want it to be in Seinfeld 
because he literally was traumatized by this as a kid. It was a way for his father just to lay into his family around Christmas. This is not too much different. Not too much different from how we show our strength. We complain that no one else listens to us. We complain about how many problems we have with you people. We complain about how wrong and how error-filled everyone else is. And then we seek through all of our power to show how strong and mighty we are. That is the way of the world. We want to make clear our victory physically, verbally, any way we possibly can. But this is not the way of God. Make no doubt God will indeed have victory, but not this way. He will have victory in seeming defeat. In 12.10, we read the following. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Skipping up to the beginning of chapter 13, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. He is one who will deliver his people, but he delivers them by being pierced for them. He is pierced to a cross. He is pierced with a spear to show that he is dead and dead indeed. He will win victory for them by dying. This, no doubt for those who would have read this the first time, must have been figurative. They, they would have thought, this is clearly speaking of God. How will this happen to God? But Oh, God will take on flesh. God will submit himself in the person of Jesus Christ to death. He will take on that which we owed and showed that he will have victory over everything for us. It is only by dying that he would be able to pay for our sins. It is only by dying that he will be able to destroy death forever. This is how Satan's head is crushed. For Satan has no more power over the people of God if he has no power of death, if he has no power of accusation, if he has no power of sentence over us, he has no power over us at all. Therefore, a fountain of blessing is opened up. It washes away our sins. Our idols are removed from us. The method of God's grace is always through this sort of irony. It always comes to us in ways we don't expect. Not in the boasting of the world, not in the works of the world, he doesn't desire at all to appease the sensibilities of the powerful, the rich. He doesn't look at a certain group of people and say, that's a strategic group of people that I need to win to my side. Rather, he accomplishes work in this most wonderfully ironic way. Through a baby, born to a virgin, helpless, small, laying in a feeding trough. These aren't just the themes of Christmas. This is how God handled his entire existence as Jesus Christ on this earth. As one of those of the despised people, the sinners and tax collectors, 
of those who seemed far off, leaving the 99 for the one. He wins his victory, he leads his people, and he shows himself a king in precisely the same way, completely and utterly out of step with the world. It is yet another reminder of how God's victory is won and how we should view our own victories in this world. Friends, we we don't get victories the way the world gets victories. No matter how much we want to count them as such, they are cheap and they are worthless in the end. Our victories cannot be counted simply by Supreme Court decisions and they can't be counted simply by voting boxes and they can't be counted simply by battlefields. We win by loving one another. We win by loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. We win by giving that others might be enriched. We win as living like our Lord Jesus Christ lived. That's how we win. No matter what the world looks like around us, we are more than conquerors, not by conquering, but by loving our lives, even, not even unto death. That brings us to these middle chapters chapters 7 and 8, and the meaning of God's grace. Let us read the first 10 verses of chapter 7, if you would, with me. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, were there cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you despise, devise evil against another in your heart. He says, you, you think that you ought to come before the Lord and you ought to fast because things don't look great for you in the world. This is, this is what I called your fathers to do when everything looked awesome, when Jerusalem was prosperous, when, when the influence of Israel spread as far as it possibly could. I called them to repentance and they didn't come. Do you think that repentance is what I need of you? Do you think that fasting is what I need of you? Fasting is needed when there is sin. What I need of you, what I want of you, is to walk appropriately and rightly before me, to show kindness and mercy, to do well for the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner and the poor. Those who are the least need to be taken care of. You need to watch out for them. You need to love them more than you love yourself. I will take care of you. You take care of them. God does not want you to have to worry about fasting anymore. Chapter 8, verses 14 through 23. For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. In other words, he's saying, as much as I wanted to discipline them, I wanted to punish them for the evil that they did, so now my heart and soul, my will is set fully and totally on doing good to you. These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts. People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. No. No more are we going to fast. It's not that fasting is wrong. It's certainly not that we need no repentance. Luther was right in the first 95 DC when he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It ought to be the natural response. We will sin We repent because the Lord is good and just and faithful to forgive us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther was right about that. The Lord does desire our repentance. It should be our instinct. The Lord longs to forgive us. But we should note that the Lord does not intend that we fast in the same manner as before. There are times when it might be the right thing to do. But now, specifically now at Christmas, is not the time. The Lord desires not our fasting, but our feasting. He desires that we see and know and respond to the joy of the Lord. And there's good news for you, friend, even as we've done already this morning. The joy of the Lord is often depicted in terms of feasting for His people. The great times of gathering together and eating and sharing a meal with one another, feasting with one another. He says, you're not to fast during these months. You, you fasted all the time in these months. Now is not the time. Now you feast. Yes, we are to repent, and there are probably times when we ought to fast. But that is not to last forever. Christmas is one of those times. We are to feast. For it is a sure symbol that the favor of our God is upon us. It is a sure sign that he is here for us. Joy, peace, and comfort has come for his people. So this week, leading up to Christmas, no doubt you will gather with friends, you will gather with family. Speak of your gratitude for what Christ has done for you. Speak of your gratitude for Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, taking on your sins, giving you forgiveness, giving you peace and comfort. Friends, I will tell you to eat, drink, 
and be merry. But you are not to do so because tomorrow you die. You're not alone. The world is going to eat, drink, and be merry this week. Even people who celebrate Festivus are going to eat, drink, and be merry this week. They do it because they know their time is short. They do it because you only live once. And they've got to get as much of it here as they can. We do it. We do it as an act of faith. Because no matter how dark and miserable it is in Michigan in December, no matter how dark and miserable your life is at times here, no matter how frustrating life can be, no matter how sad and sorrow-filled it is, your God will feast with you one day. So, So we feast now, not as the ultimate sign of what we get, but as a foretaste of what we have. For to us a child has been born, and to us a son has been given. His name is Emmanuel. He has been God with us. He has continually been with us. He will continually be with us. And one day he will be with us in a manner that is distinct and different from how we have him now. We rest with him in faith now. There will be a day when faith is no longer necessary, when we will rest with him and feast with him. So, this week lift up a glass in happiness, give a toast, sing songs in joy. For the Lord has done great things for us. Believe in that. Trust in it. Rebel. Not against the Lord, but against the ways of the world. Rebel against the anger, the angst, the frustration. Rebel against everyone who's trying to rile you up. Rebel against everyone who's worrying you about the doomsday of the world. Yes, yes, the world is going to pot. It always was going to. But our Savior has come. He has lived and he has died. Sing songs of joy and feast this week. Because we are having in those things nothing but the foretaste of the good awaits us. Because Jesus Christ has come. Lord, we live in a world that preys off of our fears, off of our anger, out of our, off of our own selfish and worldly desires. Yet you have shown us the worthlessness of these things, our anger, our desires, our fears. They get us nothing. Our anxiety does not add an hour to our life. Let us live as you lived giving of our lives for others, loving them, longing for the kingdom that you have in store for us. As we feast, let us do so in faith. 
not eating and drinking as the Gentiles do, for our days are short, but in a faithful and symbolic act of faith, for our days will last in joy forever. To Christ, the Son of God, the Wonderful Counselor, the King of Kings, the Child who has been given to us, be glory, power, might, blessing, and praise forever and ever. Amen.